This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxying cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. This is Strange Assembly, episode 128, Alien Invasion. Donnie, you have an accent, so that must be you're some sort of crazy foreigner, right? I'm an alien. I'm a legal alien. I'm a Brit living in Tennessee. Yeah, that doesn't quite scan. You get the idea. (laughs) What? We... We let people legally into this country? I thought we were building some sort of gigantic bug zapper fence to keep everybody out. The, the trick is that I'm an international manager, so I employ Americans. And yeah, America likes people who employ Americans, so I get in. Ah, yes. But not as many as the companies would like, right? We're supposed to be... That's one of the things businesses want. We're supposed to have more visas for highly skilled workers to come in. Yep, business always wants more of those. Yes, yes. But... This is not a politics or immigration <laughs> related show. Uh, <laughs> this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast, and today specifically a Legend of the Five Rings podcast. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is James Donathorn Tate, otherwise known as Donnie. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. And now let's see, what, what have you? So you have, you have won multiple Cote, so that's good. I think that Am I correct in recalling that, was it last year or over the course of Emperor Arc that you made the cut with every single clan? Uh, I didn't actually check. Certainly a lot of them. Um, I don't think it was every single one. But okay. There's one enough event. That was the problem. <laughs> yes, that, that always does uh, get in the way. Uh, for example, Donnie here is, unless I'm wildly misinformed, running the Knoxville Cote correct. on April 19th, uh, which... I would certainly like to go to because it's one of the two close ones, and I am still working on childcare arrangements because my <laughs> wife has a concert that day. I thought Easter weekend was a safe one. People not having uh, other engagements booked beyond Easter itself. Okay, so Legend of the Five Rings. Let's see. The, the first question: You are you've, you've played a lot of clans, but your first clan is Phoenix. Absolutely. Yep. And the general consensus is that Phoenix is not so good right now. Do you have any rays of hope or sunshine to give your your Phoenix brethren about the first half of Cote season? Yes and no. Uh, The yes bit is that we have lots of really good cards. Um, Spells are strong. Uh, Things like Touch of Death, straight up kill somebody. A lot of spells with range attacks. Again, they kill people. Ivory as an addition is very much about killing things. Um, There aren't many ways of doing it. The people who can kill other people and keep their people alive do well uh, and, and win games. We have lots of ways of killing people. What we lack is the ability to get up and running quickly. It's quite slow to build up your, your engine, I guess, in a Phoenix deck these days. Uh, and particularly, if you're trying to build a military deck, you can attrition all the things. But can you take provinces fast enough to actually seize control of the game against a defensive deck? So you know, we, there's lots of tools there, and I'm, I'm sure there must be a deck in there somewhere that can do a good job and potentially even win an event. I haven't found the right recipe yet to balance all the murder with you know, the things that keep you in battle and the things that let you actually take provinces. Um, I, you know, it's a few weeks out from your, your first Cote in Atlanta, uh, and I still haven't worked out what I'm playing there. 
still trying to find the right recipe. And there's loads of potential. I just haven't worked out how best to tap it. Now, I, I hear if you want to, to kill all the things, everybody is, uh, is chicken, chicken littling a little bit about, uh, fallen dueling, including things like kill all the things scorpion. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is going to be as big a menace as some people think? Uh, not really. Uh, I think it's talked up more than, than it needs to be. People don't like having their guys killed in the limited phase, and fallen dueling is pretty good for killing people in the limited phase. Uh, if you're playing a sort of traditional mid-game military deck, which is, I suppose, the easiest deck to start with as a new player, uh, a fallen dueling deck is bad news for you. However, if you're playing something like a rocket dishonor deck, and there's you know, builds out of, of both crab and scorpion that can do that, a fallen dueling deck doesn't hold much fear for you. And they're causing themselves on the losses. They're not gaining much honor, uh, and you, know, you can just nudge them down there while they're still setting up their grid and trying to kill your guys. So I think the Fallen Dueling deck is definitely something that is in the environment. People will play it because it's fun. Uh, people like killing things. Um, but I don't think it's something that is going to be a terror of the Cote season in a way that uh, Clarny's Landing has been in the past or Embassy in the arc before that. It's a factor, but it won't be a, a dominant deck, I don't think. Well, dear God, I hope it's not like Embassy or Clarny's <laughs> Landing. Uh, see, that is an, an interesting take on it in that you propose a cure to fallen dueling rocket dishonor that some people might feel is worse than the disease <laughs> maybe i mean dishonor is a clock deck and the ivory rules for dishonor mean that it's much more like playing a fast honor deck in past arcs yeah it's, it's interfering with you less than uh, they used to really the the traditional rocket honor decks like i used to play in, in emperor edition don't really exist in the current arc one one crane deck aside uh, and the Rocket Dishonored deck is the closest thing to that. You, know, you can play a Scorpion deck with some bits of Chico in there and so on that can do some control as well as, as hitting your honor pretty quickly. Uh, I've seen a Crab build as well, which again just aims on, on milling your honor as quickly as possible. But if you're a military deck, your goal is basically get force on the board quickly, take provinces as quickly as you can. Uh, and in terms of defensive cards, there's nothing you know, hugely strong there to, to stop you. It's just a matter of can you get enough force on the board quickly enough to kill them before they, they disarm you out. Uh, it's a straight-up race. And that means that as a military deck, if you're building your deck to mobilize force quickly and to be able to, to get lots of force on the board, then you can beat the, the defensive decks pretty easily. I mean, they're, they're going to run out of card before you run out of force. Uh, there aren't that many ways of getting rid of your guys permanently in that sort of deck. So again, you've got this sort of rock, paper, scissors thing that the L5R is very good at, where you've got you know, the more controller-oriented decks with Fallen Dueling being the sort of star of the show there that can kill the, the military decks by killing all their guys and leaving them unable to take provinces and then, in their own time, take the military decks' provinces. But those decks are going to struggle against the fast defensive decks, uh, which the military decks are better equipped to handle. So, yeah, it's, that's the same as it's been in every past arc, I guess. Uh, just the, the labels of which which factions are doing which things and uh, what deck styles are, are filling each slot has changed a little bit. But, uh, not, nothing new. Yeah, uh, now you mentioned there being one honor deck in there. We Looking at things right now, although every single faction seems like it's supposed to have one of it, you know, either its generic theme or one of its sensei themes is going to be honor or dishonor. Mm-hmm. And yet, when when we have looked at the environment, it really feels like Crane is the only sort of viable honor deck, and it seems like anybody else would need an awful lot of help to be able to to take on Crane uh, for the honor-running crown. Have you found anything different in your testing? 
this is one of the really interesting parts of Ivory Edition, so I'm glad we're talking about this, because uh, in every past arc, Switch has been inferior to Honor simply because you're diluting your deck and you're not focusing on, on one victory condition or the other. There have been occasional Switch decks that have made it work, but in general, Honor has been stronger than Switch. In Ivory, I kind of see the opposite. I see that there's a lot of decks out there that can build solid, robust Honor decks, which aim to win by Honor against military, but are focus around battles and are able to mobilize force and, and threaten provinces. Those decks are not going to outrace a Crane, Courtier, Rocket Honor deck. You know, there's no way that you're going to outpace them. But equally, with a little bit of meta against the Honor victory condition, those decks can go military, flood the board of the bodies and, uh, and, and overwhelm the Crane defenses before they're able to cross. Um, so that's, that's a very different balance from the past. Um, there are very few Honor decks right now that are fast enough just to straight up outrace military. However, the fact that Proclaim happens automatically means that when you're building a high honor clan like Lion or my favorite Phoenix, you know, you're able to gain quite a lot of honor just by accident, um, without sacrificing military speed. And that means you can actually build an honor deck that's designed to basically just be a defensive battle oriented deck that your opponent's going to find it very hard to, to kill all your guys and take your provinces uh, in time to stop you from, from winning by honor. Um, you do take a bit of deck tuning. You have to put some honor games in there, whether you're playing sort of some duels like the uh, sanctioned duel to give you a two free honor for fake card, uh, or things like Blessed Sword. I'm, I'm enjoying that one in a lot of decks these days. Just that extra little bit of honor, just to give you that little edge and, and make you a little bit faster, while also being useful in battle to give your guys a bit of protection um, and stop them from being killed so easily. If your honor deck can either do enough attrition or um, or win battles, then you win the game. Uh, you're making your opponent come to you. And if you can if you can build that castle and stop your opponent breaking it, then you can win by honor quite easily against most of the field. Against a dishonor deck, they're going to be faster than you. Against an honor, a pure honor deck like the Crane Courtier one, they're going to be faster than you. You'll have to take the offense in those matchups and be able to do that. Um, but unlike in past arcs, that's not impossible. That's not something that uh, is really hard to build for. Because your honor gains are almost accidental to your overall deck construction. Did that make sense? It made sense. Uh, I, will, I think we'll have to see if that, how much that bears out. It, you know, th- theoretically, what always kind of comes back against that sort of things is that you are sacrificing something by being a deck that can win by honor instead of just being a straight military. And if if something like a purely defensive dishonor or honor deck is viable, that means that it's able to hold its own against a you know, full-on military deck, so why is it not able to hold its own against, you know, your your deck that is, at least to some extent, diluted? I, I think that's always the sort of dilemma that that hits the environment there. Absolutely, yeah. And and yeah, the answer is, as ever, it's about meta and, and careful choice. I mentioned Sanction Duel earlier as being something that will accelerate a, a switch deck if you're able to play dueling. It also dishonors the other guy if they choose to, uh, to refuse it and give you the honor, or kills them. And that helps clear the board, and, and or give you give you a target for knocking your opponent down. So I mean, I've played decks, for example, with a couple of brilliant cascade ends in them, which can just use those to ding people's honor a little bit and, and keep the uh, honor deck in control. Yukihime's Hot Springs is another good choice to turn off honor holdings, or dishonor holdings. Um, and so you've got you've got options there for meta about you know, look at your natural strengths and weaknesses and work out what you need to, to control. Um, again, it's you know there's there's no uh, no golden answers here, and uh, when you're playing <laughs> step. Your, your challenge is always that if you lose a battle with a switch deck, you basically lost the game. So you've got to make sure that your deck is sufficiently battle orientated that you aren't going to lose battles. But defending is an advantage over attacking. 
And if you're able to, to go first, like a lot of higher clans do, and be defending, you've got a lot more board presence and the advantage of being defender, which helps you a lot against the military matchup. Yeah, well, now you mentioned uh, going first. I know that when y- you and I have, in, in a prior conversation, uh, talked, and you, if I recall correctly, opined that you thought that going first versus going second was relatively balanced now that the... In some matchups. The extra... Okay, I'll say, because I... As I don't know if you've listened to, to 126 yet, but I have mostly concluded that I don't think that they've actually achieved that, that going first is still what you want to do most of the time. So, I mean, how do you, you said some matchups, how do you think that's playing out right now? So, so let's take the Crab Stronghold going second, for example, as a stronghold that will often go second. Its bonus is plus two problem strength, and that's really good against military decks. It's quite deceptive, deceptive actually how good it is. It wasn't until I started playing with it and putting things like Merchant Atoll on my deck as well that I realized that having a high problem strength really is a very significant advantage. However, if you're going second against, say, one of the Switch decks we were discussing, the plus two problem strength has absolutely no impact on the game. So it's ending up behind them in production with no benefit. Um, I love the Stronghold Flip as, as an idea, as a concept, but I think it isn't quite working out at the moment. Unsurprisingly, it's the first time we've tried it in that there are getting matchups where you're going second advantage really doesn't help you at all. You know, Spider, again, Spider's are a really wonderful stronghold for going second against military decks. The combination of being able to use their proactive battle action while bowed and the ability to cycle one of their provinces if they've lost one, even if they've taken one of their opponents, if they can actually outproduce their opponent on three provinces each. You know, those are really good advantages in a military matchup. But if you're playing against, say, a you know, Lion Switch deck or a Phoenix Switch deck that are sitting there and going, I'm gaining honor, come at me, you're losing production, but your, your advantages are actually not going to impact the game at all. So it's that sort of thing where sometimes going second is actually going to be balanced for the matchup. Other times going second is just going to give you no, no benefit. I mean, you're going second and, and getting the production disadvantage without the, uh, without the compensating uh, benefit of the flip side of the stronghold. Yes, I, I would, I, I will absolutely agree that it is, the issue is enhanced. In, in honor and dishonor decks for, for exactly the reason you say that a, for most of the strongholds, if not all of the strongholds, some or all of the benefit that you get for going second doesn't matter mm-hmm. in, in those matchups. And in sorts of matchups, honor and dishonor decks where traditionally it is an enormous deal whether or not you're going first or, or second to them. The whole mm-hmm. crane never ever wanted to, you know, crane honor never ever wants to play against lion. Sure. You know, traditionally. But, I've also found that to extend, you know, depending on the matchup, but also to extend to to some of the military matches. Well, for example, attachment decks, you can attach as an open now, so it's not as bad. But I, I feel like if you're an attachment deck, you really want to go first because you don't. It's inefficient to use attachments so that you're buying them on your opponent's turn. You want part of the point of attachments is that you get to wait to buy them instead of having to to not use your money now for them and and I've had a real heck of a time with dragon dueling which has to use weapons weapons and which is really trying to take advantage of hijatsu sensei and so that that seems at least in my experience that seems like it gets much more of a benefit out of going first when it can leverage its weapons the most and when it can leverage it's limited control the most. And then I, when I play against, you know, crane or, or lion military, 
that kind of evaporates. And I don't, I don't know if you found anything like that in your, your testing, or do you think that, that really once it's military on military, it's, it actually is even out pretty much now? Well, again, you can look at individual decks. I mean, if I was playing a crab deck, for example, it's rare that my opponent with their turn three personalities will be able to threaten turn four, unless they're playing lots of attachments in themselves. Cards like Advanced Warning are really good for giving you time to build and giving yourself a bit of extra breathing space and stopping that first attack and without sacrificing resources beyond a fate card. Hedratsu Sensei Dragon is an interesting case because your province strength isn't very high even in the going second side of the, province, uh, of the stronghold. Um, and so you don't have much defense against that first attack in the way that, say, a crab deck or a spider deck or a scorpion deck does. Um, that one, one or two points of province strength is really quite significant for whether people can reliably threaten your provinces there. Equally, another card that's been mentioned a lot in, in, in discussion right recently is uh, Unsettling Gathering. And to me, this whole discussion is exactly where Unsettling Gathering is most significant. You're playing a, a, a dragon item deck. You, know, you want to have a weapon on your guy to give them extra chi. Let's say you want to stop their first attack. You can become one at a time duel. I want to pump your chi before that. So you attach yourself a, a weapon on there and are ready for that. Um, if your opponent that steals that weapon, that gives them a massive tempo swing, both in terms of the amount of gold they've invested out of the total they've had available in the game because they're a turn ahead of you versus the amount that you've invested. And they've also cost you force and gained it themselves. So that's sort of that early unsettling gathering to really switch the, uh, the momentum around there can, can stop you from having a defense and, and give them one or even two provinces before you're able to regroup and, and, and get control again. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think unsettling gathering is one of, uh, I guess, three things that seem like they're sort of hot discussion topics on the, the L5R forums right now, and two of them being, is card X a problem or, or too good? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and one of those is Unsettling Gathering, and I guess my take on Unsettling Gathering is that it's way too good. It's not something I think they can go and, and ban. It's the sort of individual card that's annoying and too good, but isn't really defining a deck or deforming an environment in the same way, but pay X in the action phase to destroy your attachment, that's, you know, that's okay, that's reasonable, but pay X to, to stealing an attachment is a huge deal, and almost every military deck, at least, seems like it's running attachments of some sort. So it's not like unsettling is spending a lot of time being dead in your hand. So it seems better than I would like it to be, but not something that is you know, worth banning or nerfing in some way. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't like the card much for its early tempo swing because it means that the side that starts with the upper hand can enforce that and, and, and you know, reinforce the going first advantage. Um, it does have drawbacks as well, though. I mean, if you draw it at the end of your turn, it's useless for the whole following turn. Um, so it's no good if you draw it when you're having to defend. And, you know, as you say, you come up against some decks that don't want attachments, even though right now, because of the uh, the skirmish nature of the environment, attachments are very popular. Um, so yeah, there are drawbacks to it. I agree it's a very powerful effect, but if, if I had a card that said, pay X in the action phase to destroy an attachment, I don't think I'd play it. Uh, I don't think there's a uh, that's ever going to be strong enough to, to make a deck. Um, suffer the consequences is a card that basically says, pay X minus 2 to destroy an attachment in battle. You know, I started that having it in all my decks. It's karmic as well, so it could cycle away when, when it's not useful. These days, it, it finds it hard to make a, make a spot in my decks. Um, even though attachments are so prevalent, it kills one straight up for, for a very efficient price. 
So yeah, it's it's hard to get the right balance here between a card that's not very good at all and a card that's too strong. Yeah, and I I I agree that something that was not even limited, but something that was just that was just open pay X, destroy an attachment that costs X. I, I agree with you that that would not get played. It would have to be somewhere in between. I don't know. Well, I mean, what if if you had a card that was limited destroying attachments that, right, so it doesn't care about the cost at all, but it's not actually stealing something Mm -hmm. that, I don't know, maybe that that seems like it could be okay. I mean, people are going to get grumpy if you destroy their eight cost attachment, but I mean, I I guess you could make it X minus six or something. (laughs) I guess, uh, the design team and the playtesters will just have to work on that sort of thing. <laughs> this illustrates nicely how difficult card design is and the difficult job that, that, that Reese and Jeremy and co are doing. Particularly if we look at, look at the environment right now, I mean, when Ari was first released, you know, I, I read a comment somewhere on the lines that the uh, development team you know, would be quite keen to, to move on to a pure ivory environment and, and get rid of the sets that were introduced at the end of Emperor, you know, coils and gates and aftermath. And at first, my reaction was, but there's so much fun stuff in coils, you know, I don't want to get rid of all the fun stuff that was there. <laughs> but the more I've played Ivory, the more I've come to agree with that sentiment, that every problem with the environment is from stuff that comes from before the Ivory base set. And that, you know, those are things that are, the things that are slightly deforming or just not, just odd odd slightly with the way that Ivory plays. Uh, yeah, yeah, coils, yeah, the most common category of that seems to be personalities from Coils of Madness. There are a number of those guys that are just quote unquote too good compared to what you have personalities getting in in Ivory Edition, and then just a magistrate falls for the fallen dueling deck. That's that's from coils, but uh, yeah, and some other things beforehand, uh, as is often the case, right? As you get closer to Ivory Edition, the problem cards are less obvious. Well, World of Heaven Farm was a, was a good example. It was an aftermath, um, uh, and that ended up breaking things with a Gates of Chaos card. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, they, they're, they're not all uh, not all easy that way. But yeah, certainly most of most of aftermath and most of Gates are, are okay. The ones that were deal bugged, at least. Uh, and Coils have more cards that are definitely above curve. Uh, you can see that you know, the the ivory sort of design guidelines clearly didn't come into to effect until after the Coil set was uh, sent to the printers. Yeah. One of the places where I think that there's a pretty obvious, we're doing it this way before Ivory, and then this is how we're doing it once you hit Ivory, is weapons, where when you hit Ivory Edition, the force that you get from weapons just drops like a rock. You start having weapons that are, you know, five gold for one force and an ability, or six gold for three fours and a you know a range in a melee two or something like that whereas before that y- you can get a lot more force and i had originally thought that you would be able to do pretty well relying on those old weapons but it as i've tested more the most efficient old weapons are these things that don't have battle abilities and i find myself really wanting to have lots of battle actions on the board so my fate deck can have things like turtle shell to stop guys from dying and back to the front for when I get incapacitated and and having all these weapons that don't have any kind of battle abilities has really hampered that have you you know playing with or playing against 
how has the ivory edition versus pre-ivory edition weapons thing played out for you? Uh, just a quick aside before I answer your question, that that's a very similar dilemma to what I face with Phoenix military, where I've got a choice between spells that have battle actions on them, reuse all battle actions on them, but no force, or playing either spells that have force or items that have force to let me crack provinces. Um, so I, I definitely uh, recognize that, that dilemma you're facing, trying to find space for utility cards alongside battle actions alongside force. On the weapon side, I agree with you. I mean, things like Justice of the Crane is, is a really efficient card, and uh, Family Sword is a really efficient card, but neither of them really affects battles very much. You know, Justice is, is probably worth including for the honor meta aspect of it, if you're going to face a lot of switch decks, because I really don't like that card at all. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, they don't really do anything to actually you know, attrition your enemy or help you actually you know, keep up with the, in the attrition game. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with your, your observations there. Okay. Let's see. Let's get back to to one of the other, probably the hottest of the the hot topics. One of the things that we've talked about is fallen dueling, and uh, I think agree with you that it's to the extent that people think that it's going to be a dominant world crushing deck, it's it's overrated. However, the perceived strength of fallen dueling has contributed to the possibility, I, I let's say, that people would actually run. Purge of Fudoism. For those who don't just memorize all the cards off the top of their head, that right, that's event limited. Uh, each player chooses and destroys a Fudo Fallen or Shadowlands card, which means if if your opponent has Fudo Fallen or Shadowlands cards and you don't have any, you target and destroy one of theirs, and then they have to target and destroy one of their own. The reason why this has caused something of an uproar is that half of the Spider Clan personality base has Shadowlands, and so if people are actually running something like playsets of Purge of Fudoism, that could be really bad for Spider Clan players. And so there have been a, a number of people who have called for that to receive a rata to remove the, the Shadowlands from it. How do you see that playing out? Well, first off, I really feel for the Spider Clan players here because you know, they're being hit by something that's really aimed at a, a completely different deck, a completely different clan, and the meta is sort of catching them in the crossfire, which is uh, unfortunate. So, uh, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for that for that position, and uh, I'm absolutely considering playing Spider myself, at least in one of the early Kotos, partly as a sort of um, support the clan when in a difficult situation. Purge itself, again, it's a pre-ivory card, and we've already talked about, you know, about those. Uh, I, I think it is something that the environment wouldn't mind if it went away, let's put it that way. Equally, the impact of banning a card is significant, and uh, I completely understand that this is not something that you want to do lightly. I think everyone kind of wishes it wasn't there, but doesn't feel strong enough to ban it. That's just saying. I can certainly sympathize with that position. Will it see play? That's really the big question. Um, Fallen Dueling will be out there, but will it be that popular? The Scorpion uh, Dishonored deck is going to run a Fallen guy, but is it worth running an event to kill that one guy who's also expendable and you know, will give him a free card when he dies anyway? Um, yeah, but definitely a jury stood out on that one. Three Dynasty starts to play a full playset of Purge is a significant cost in this edition. I mean, this isn't Emperor where you could play six events near that quite happily. You know, the lack of border keep means you play more holdings, and that means that playing non-personality, non-holding cards is a is a very uh, brave thing to do, I guess. I, I rarely build decks that have more than one or two uh, non-personality, non-gold holdings. So playing three Purge is definitely a major investment. I, I think that if you look at decks that make the cut, Purge of Fudoism is unlikely to be any of them. However, will Purge of Fudoism index that don't make the cut stop Spider players from making the cut? 
data, data is not, not there yet. I can't really make a prediction. I'd like to think the answer is no, and that this is really a storm in a teacup, and people aren't going to play Persian enough for it to matter. Um, but uh, who knows? I'm not going to predict the future on that one. Uh, yeah, obviously we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't think that I don't think that Purge will get played enough to matter. I, I guess that was my opinion when the card came out, and I still think that that will be the case. I think that the possibility of people playing one is there, but I don't think that will be happen that much for for the reason you said. You really, really, really want a lot of holdings and guys, uh, and and you have a lot of options for those couple of, you know, things that aren't <laughs> gold-producing holdings and aren't personalities, some well, of which... Of Vex's Oracle of the Void is one of those two slots, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, which which might include things like Oracle of the Void or Bamboo Harvesters, which I don't think you can really count as a gold-producing holding, because it if you buy it on turn one, it doesn't actually produce gold next turn. Oh, yeah. And then... I don't know, just as a, I mean, if you have a random one gold, General's Hatamoto is not bad. True. But, I don't know, so I, I think it will simply not happen for people to play three. It, mm-hmm. It's just not gonna, it, especially since, even when you're talking about fallen dueling, like sometimes fallen dueling means there's three fallen guys in the deck. Sure. And you might have Purge come up, and the fallen dueling deck doesn't actually get a fallen guy. <laughs> Or they just buy somebody else and they, okay, you've occupied one of your dynasty slots, like leaving your purge sitting there, and then they just, okay, I can't play the one copy of a Magistrate Falls that I drew. Sure. I found one of the interesting things, and maybe this is a semantic and stuff philosophy person in me uh, coming out, but you said that you thought that the purpose of this, of the card... Was I'm sorry, you, you said that you, it was kind of unfair that Spider was getting caught by a card that was not aimed about them at, at them, and I guess there's a couple of things. First, I'm not sure what the basis is for saying that it's not aimed, that it's not aimed at them. And also, I don't know that that matters. So, okay, so let, let me clarify then, because uh, absolutely from a, from a card design perspective, it is aimed at them. They've got half their personality based Shadowlands, and it says kill a Shadowlands card. That said, when people are choosing to put it in their decks, they're not putting it in their decks because spiders are a problem. They're putting it in the deck they don't like fallen dealing. So it's not that design isn't aiming it at them, it's that the people who put it in their decks are aiming it at a different deck. Um, and so it's sort of, you're being hit by meta that sort of accidentally catches you, even though the person's playing the meta for a different reason. Okay. To say. Okay, yes, that, that I will concur with, right? Yeah, you know, see a splash damage, you know, I'm, there's one deck that has overly good attachments. People play anti-attachment stuff. Now your deck that has some other kind of mediocre attachments gets jacked too. Sure, exactly. Or as the case may be. You, you are dueling. That means you have to play weapons. People are playing Unsettling Gathering because attachments are common. You know, you're one of the decks contributing to that, so it's kind of, kind of yep. fair. You know? But if you, were, if, you, if you were playing it for a completely different deck, it was a major problem for them. Let's say there was a crane scout deck out there that used heavy attachments, and people needed to play on settling gathering to measure that, but wouldn't play it otherwise. Then you start feeling a bit miffed that your rather slower Kensai deck happens to get randomly killed by a card that's been played for a different matchup. Yeah. Now, there's another wrinkle in this to me is that it's sort of interesting, as as some people have noted, there was a a long history in L5R of cards that 
Jack Shadowlands. <laughs> yep. And uh, whether or not that's a good or bad history, you know, it's out there. And I sort of wonder, like, would would this card be something that people would have a problem with or complain about if the Shadowlands faction was still the Shadowlands? Is it the fact that we've got a more normalized Shadowlands-y faction that makes this an issue, or is it that L5R design is at a more refined place now, and yeah, there used to be cards that just obliterated Shadowlands, but there also used to be entire clans that were completely unplayable for five years at a time, and that's just how it was. (laughs) Does it matter that it's Shadowlands, or is it versus Spider, or is it just a a coincidence? And, And even if we went back to an old school Shadowlands faction, we wouldn't find this okay anymore. Interesting. So I think there's, there's two strands here. One is the story strand, and I know people don't like using story as a justification for CCG mechanics, but yeah, there is an aspect to which the Spider Clan is forged in adversity and knows the rest of the Empire hates them. You know, some clans more than others, but they have no true friends in the Empire. And they've got allies in the Dragon who are told by the Empress to be their allies, but you know, most people would rather not deal with the Spider if they, if they, if they could. Spider victories are therefore something that is all the more cherished because they're so difficult, if that makes sense. Um, you know, they're definitely a clan that's got their backs against the wall at any given time. That really appeals to me personally. I mentioned that because we've been playing Spider this country season, and that's definitely one of the reasons behind it, that they're definitely a clan that uh, every success is a sweeter because it's hard. Um, so you know, there, there's an element to which having, cla- having cards that randomly screw your clan is a, a part of the price of playing Spider. That said... From a card design perspective, that's not a good justification. Um, uh, historically, we've had cards that kill Shadowlands because Shadowlands cards have been strong. There is one standout Shadowlands card that is way above the curve for every edition, and I really couldn't believe that it was printed with a cost reduction, uh, and that's the new Bianchi, the Unmaker, from uh, uh, the most broken set of the, in the history of the game. Uh, and she comes back with a cost reduction, and, and you know, I'm sitting there going, how on earth did this happen? Uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, Sorry, not actually. What's her name? It's uh, Shiho. Shiho, thank you. Maybe Shiho. Um, yeah, she, she she is absolutely amazing. I mean, there's there's particularly with a spider stronghold after you've lost a province means that she goes back on top of your deck. You yeah, and then you just get a rebuyer that turn. You know, she's basically there every turn and removing a whole bunch of opposing cards. You know, for the cost of basically four gold a turn, which is nothing. You know, that's a really, really, really strong card for spider and one of the absolute strongest cards in the environment right now. You know, she she. It's almost single-handedly justifies Purge of Fudu and hitting Shadowlands cards. But I think she's also a ninja and it also hits ninja, so that would work as well. Um, you know, she, she is definitely way up there as one of the most uh, above above uh, curve cards in the current environment. Um, that said, she is only one card. There are other cards that are strong with Shadowlands, like Marika XP, a uh, really strong card there. But she's eight gold, one force. You know, she, yeah, she's a great control element, but she's a traditional control card that doesn't help you take provinces, but does help you control your opponent's personalities. Uh, Shiho is is both efficient force with an awesome ability and non-unique, uh, which makes her uh, really very strong. But if you look at, at the uh, the Spider Clan basic personality base, you know most decks are going to play Tyrao, who is a uh, five gold three two Shigenja with a, a pretty useful ability. Uh, Daigatsu Magoro, who again you know, five gold, he's only two force. Uh, but has two useful abilities, both of which require barring and straightening. But I mean, he's situational. You can you can pick whichever you want to use at a given time. You know, there, there's a uh, there's a uh, four gold Daigatsu guy who 
has three force and hands out minus two force uh, as a straight up penalty. You know, those are all efficient, solid personalities that, you know, Purge of aside, form the core of most spider decks. Um, and Purge hits all of them. And so if you buy two guys turn three and your opponent resolves Purge and wipes your board, you've just lost a turn for no gain. Uh, yeah, well, you've, I, I, if your opponent resolves Purge and kills two of your guys, that, and that's, you know, 90% of the time, that's going to be the game, I would think. Sure, yeah. And, and, and I, if you choose not to play those guys, what other options do you have? Well, there's a bunch of monks. Uh, there's one good monk at five gold who's straight into you and you have a weapon attached. And your sensor uses weapons, so there's kind of a sort of sub-theme sub there. But most of your other cheap guys are just blank force. Now, I started at the top by saying that Ivory Edition is a game about skirmish, uh, where your goal is to kill your opponent's guys and not have your guys get killed. Blank guys don't help with that, particularly small blank guys who die to every range attack your opponent's playing. <laughs> um, you know, guys who can actually help you win battles and potentially kill people in battle resolution if they don't run away first, um, you know, do help with that. Um, and people like Tarao who help you delay long enough to get your bigger guns out and get your engine running um, uh, are also really useful for that. Um, so I kind of feel that Spider's cheap personality base they're going to be relying on in the early turns of the game. They're, they're basically all the good ones at Shadowlands. Uh, and if you're playing a deck that tries to avoid playing any people hit by Purge, and you can do that with a spider, just about. You can play a monk side deck that, that isn't affected by it. You're, you're kind of lacking any of your, your main control tools, and uh, your things that you use to get an edge over the decks that go first against you and get the production advantage against you. Yeah, I, I think if if I was taking Spider to a Kote, I think I would just have to... D- Dynasty side, at least, I think I would just have to ignore Purge. I, I, you know, it's you might you might randomly lose a game to Purge, but I feel like if you don't use any of their Shadowlands guys, you're probably not going to win a terrible lot of games most of the time, anyway. I agree. So <laughs> it really just seems to be a do you bother to run Absolution or not? And I I think if I was them right now, b- because you don't know if the Purge is going to coming, so it's not like you can know that you need to Karmic away the Absolution anyway. I don't think I'd even bother with Absolution. I think I'd just pay my quarter and take my chances. And I think more than that, Absolution, you know, three fake cards, is not going to keep up with Purge's three Dynasty cards. So it might save you from one resolution of the event, but you're still going to lose to the other one that, that happens during the course of the game. Uh, well, like I said, like that, I really don't think that the multiple purges is going to come up. But even, yeah, but even if there's one, even if they're playing with purge, you might have absolution when they don't have purge. Mm-hmm. You might not have absolution when they do have purge. And you never know whether or not the purge... Well, I mean, maybe if you run around to the same person again in the, the top eight or something like that, you'd know. But, you know, generally, you, you have no clue that the purge is or isn't coming, so it's going to... Yeah, so it's going to be able to come up. Basically, you know, play Spider Fall and Dueling, pay Absolution because it's four focus value, and, uh, you know, play the cards they're metering and have the meta to stop their meta, and uh, laugh at them when, when their Purge resolves and the Absolution is. <laughs> I think that's, that's a, the, the play for Spider players here who don't like Purge, just uh, go all in on Fall and Dueling and uh, play Absolution and laugh at them when Purge fails to resolve. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd... Uh... I, I thought that the Fallen guys would be a little bit more in check because I I thought Nexus would be around more, and from what I can see, nobody's running Nexus. I, I hope not, because that means I have many more Phoenix tech, tech options than I do right now. Yeah, Nexus really stops the high on the clans from running stuff that loses the mana. Yeah. I think even if very few people are playing Nexus, I think more people will play Nexus than play Purge, because it's efficient gold, and therefore 
you know, your plane traps deck wanting to play, you know, Diodoji Tabai, there's the Fallen Scout who uses you one honor. Well, that one honor becomes four honor if your opponent has a Nexus out, or seven if they have two. You can start knocking yourself out of honor requirements real quick. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think people should play Nexus. I just, it seems like when I look at deck lists, mm-hmm. I don't really see it around much. And maybe it'll end up, maybe I'll be right, and it's actually pretty good, and then when more winning deck lists come out, they'll have Nexus, and then it'll start making its way back in, but... But going back to what I was saying about decks not making the cut playing Purge, but would they stop Spider-Fans decks making the cut by having enough in the environment? Nexus is the same way. Even if the top decks aren't playing it, if enough of the environment is playing it, and given Productive Mine is rare from a set pre-Ivory, the chances are people will play Nexus as their fourth of all holding because they don't have Productive Mine. You know, I think there'll be enough of it out there that makes playing fallen cards that are high on a clans a really risky proposition. Uh, absolutely case that if you're a Scorpion, which is the main fallen dealing deck, you don't care about Purge. You lose, uh, care about Nexus. You don't lose any extra honor from it. Yeah. You know, so the best fallen decks right now are the ones that start in low honor clans, which really is as it should be. I mean, you know, thematically, it should be the low honor clans that are more willing to use the dodgy personalities. Yeah, yeah. I think that if you're a high honor clan and you've got an all-star who happens to be a fallen guy, like, you can play Lion and put Sudokin in. And if your opponent happens to be playing with Nexus, well, then you just fl- discard him and and whatever it's it's one card but i yeah i really do not want to play with the the sort of non unique mid level fallen guys the oh it's a three force guy for five with destined yeah and Dragon, uh, that's a couple of really good choices there who are fallen but otherwise pretty solid for your deck type and between the honor loss and the risk of nexus you know living an extra two honor for each nexus i agree it's not worth the risk you know there would be games that you straight up lost, and you know, traditionally in, in a Kote, if you want to make the cut on a Kote, you know, you, you're going to have one loss to your deck malfunctioning on you. That's that's fair enough. You don't want to have that second automatic loss from just coming up against a bad matchup, because that starts to risk your ability to make the cut. You know, so uh, uh, I think that's a, that's a very solid decision not to play fallen fallen guys and high clans right now, because you know, Nexus is almost certain to be seen enough to uh, to stop you from making the cut. Now, off of the, you know, strictly CCG environment stuff, all right, we've been talking about Kote Season. The Kote Season storyline, uh, the renewal, has been put up. But what do you think about that? I'm a fan. Uh, I'm a fan because uh, we're getting back to the idea of a mega game where every player can contribute. Um, part of the problem with Kote's is that there's been a shift over the last couple of years to try and treat each one of them as a storyline tournament. You know, with their own unique bit of story as a result of the event. There are way too many Kotos to make that really practical. You know, L5R's great drawing point is that we as players can affect the story. I love that. I came here from a role-playing game. I wouldn't be playing the card game if I hadn't started with a role-playing game. Uh, and so I think it's really important that players can impact the story. We're trying to have, what, 50 players each have their own story as a result of three months of card gaming. If 50 stories is an awful lot to write, you know, even if you have a, a large and well-staffed story team, which is a, a nightmare to manage and very expensive. I think that getting back to the idea of treating the game like a massive role-playing campaign with loads of players in it who, as a mass, can affect the story, but if, if there's no great critical mass within the player base, are following the storyline that the, uh, the, the the GM, in this case the story team, uh, is setting, uh, is, is a, a very good model. And uh, I think the way that Kote Season is trying to get an overall strength of the clans and use that to impact the story uh, is, is a good model to, to, to base on. I hope that the World Championships and so on go back to having real choices being made by the single person who 
get who wins the world championship because that's cool. Um, I go back to, to Justin Walsh with the Crops of Air Dragon. That's one of the greatest moments of all of our story, in my opinion, uh, where he played a crop Phoenix deck. He corrupted the Air Dragon in the final, having been pure all the way up to that point, because he needed to do that to get the edge to win the final. Uh, and as a result, the Air Dragon fell and became the Shadow Dragon. That's awesome. You know, that's amazing. And that, that to me, is uh, a, a large part of why I love this game. Um, I'd love to get back to that point where you can get those individual really important games having really significant impacts on the story. But equally, I like the way that for the majority of events, and Kote's definitely count in that category, it, it's about the cumulative impact of a lot of players creating momentum for their clan uh, and getting back to the idea of the clans each working together and uh, you know, not not uh, not making it easy for people to, to, to go and play the clan. I'll go back to what I was saying about considering playing Spider this season. I've always seen Spider as kind of the true Phoenix in the dark sense. You know, Phoenix have a strong blood speaker history and the Spider kind of inherited that mantle. Um, so as a Phoenix player, I feel a lot of sympathy for the Spider and uh, would definitely consider playing them you know, for story reasons and, and be a fallen or dark Phoenix. Playing Unicorn of the Cody would be a lot harder for me if that would help the Unicorn clan and hurt my clan. You know? Last season, I played a lot of different factions and I did that because the Cote tournament structure actually disincentivized me from playing my clan. I risked getting my own guys killed and didn't really gain anything for it. Um, I loved the fact that I could have that level of impact. I could kill people by playing, by playing in the, in the event. But uh, it did mean that I was actually rewarded for playing other clans rather than my own. I like the way that this season is going back to saying, be clan loyal, you'll help your clan, uh, even if you, your clan isn't very good. You know, Playing clan, clan loyal helps your clan and helps you achieve something in the story. You said you want to you, you want to play Spider because they're like the Phoenix with the blood speakers and all. You, you know that those guys aren't in the Spider anymore, right? Well, the shooter are gone, but the idea of <laughs> any 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 um, means justify the end and uh, you know, the the Daigatsu being the true Hantei and uh, you know, the the you know, Kepeki being currently the last living descendant of you know, the true Imperial line, the original Kami Hantei. You know, all that stuff is 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 kind of there's a twisted honor there that. Uh, resembles a lot of what the Phoenix Clan has been historically, where we've sort of taken a slightly sideways view of, you know, of, of what the rest of the Empire sees as honourable behaviour. I mean, the Lion and the Phoenix have never really got along, because the Lion are the truly honourable clan that stick to Bushido above all else. And the Phoenix are the ones who kind of look at, well, you know, what, what is the Empire trying to achieve as a whole here? What's the greater good? What do we need to do to make this happen? And ignore what tradition says is honourable in favour of what the, the honour from first principles says is a is a sensible thing to do to achieve you know the the, the good of the empire. Uh, for the blood of the phoenix is a is a traditional blood speaker uh, uh, expression, and that whole concept of just eyeing the greater good and, and the ends justifying the means. The spider has a lot of that philosophy in them, even though there's also a lot of philosophies that have come in there about might making right that that don't resemble the phoenix uh, uh, history. <laughs> I, I find it interesting the way you look at that because I I guess because you're taking it almost all the way up to the top of the honor change. I find it interesting how, in a lot of ways, almost all of the clans, certainly the majority of the clans, are to some extent defined by the way in which they don't follow the norm or don't do what they're supposed to do. This is the sort of way in which we don't act like proper samurai, don't care about Bushido or honor or or whatever. That's an interesting observation that, that deserves more thought than I can give it right now. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of truth in that. That our flaws are what make us special, I guess. 
and you pick the flaws that you most like, uh, and that's your plan. Uh, I, I I think there's a lot of truth in that philosophy. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, like, we're, we're the crab, what, what are we, oh, well, we don't care about social niceties and politics, we just focus on the Shadowlands, or we're the dragon, we don't care about your social politics and niceties, we do our own moral, you know, our own individualistic enlightenment thing, or we're the mantis, we don't care about what you think you're, you know, every, so, uh, from, from a perspective of, of Spider or Phoenix or whoever, uh, you might want to play and, and take an interesting choice, what choice would you want the clan to make if it got one of the the 500 or 750 point prizes or or what clan what what choice would you like any clan to make that you think would make for an interesting story really good question the story is still unfolding in front of us uh, and so i i like choices that further the overall story make the overall story more interesting i like things that synergize with what the story team are already doing rather than try and tell their own completely independent story that's separate from everything that's going on. And that's a matter of personal taste. I mean, I, I prefer um, trying to find a way to build within the constraints of, of, of the overall story rather than trying to break it or trying to, to work against it. We've had a great fiction released you know, was it this morning or yesterday morning, uh, the one about uh, Saken visiting the uh, the Phoenix lands and testing a new Master of Iron and things, uh, which obviously as a Phoenix player I was particularly interested in, in what my clan is up to at the moment. There's definitely signs that the two heirs are sort of on manoeuvres, though whether they're on manoeuvres against each other or in, in, in search of completely independent goals is not yet really revealed. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely an aspect to which the story is, is setting up you know, a, a, either a conflict between the two heirs or a sort of, you know, which, which side do you support type aspect. Uh, the favour cards included with the starter decks give further evidence of this. Yes. Um, so so it would be interesting to start looking at, well, how the clans going to line up between the two heirs, are we going to create a sort of, you know, Seiken versus Seibatsu type, or Shibatsu type um, uh, storyline whereby, you know, the Phoenix clan, if they're supporting, say, Seiken, given the recent fiction, um, come into conflict with the Scorpion clan supporting Shibatsu, uh, and and you you pick the uh, one on the other side that you like the least based on, on what's going on. You know, there's been the War of the Twins recently between Phoenix and Scorpion. Those two clans, because Shiba and Beishi were brothers, have a long history of being sort of yin and yang almost to each other. You know, the good knowledge and the bad knowledge, that makes sense. Um, and so in- encouraging further rivalry there, if the two are supporting opposite sides, would make sense. But I also mentioned earlier that the Phoenix and Lion did get on very well. I could certainly see the Phoenix supporting Shibatsu uh, and Lion supporting Seiken and, and them being on opposite sides in that sense. And again, that would be an interesting rivalry to pursue. So I, I think I, I can't have the choices already sort of laid out as to what I'd like to do. But I would like to encourage rivalries that already have context and history behind them and try and further this whole, you know, where is the where are the colonies going? Where's the empire going? What are the heirs doing? And, and try and hook into that, that wider plot and add depth and, and richness to that storyline. So let's see if the Phoenix were then going to win the kill a clan champ, a, a well, right, there's the 750 point kill a family daimyo or clan champion prize, which Dineen has confirmed that family daimyos include clan champions. So presumably if people have the choice, they will kill a clan champion. You want to go kill Natoshi? Uh, the Tamori daimyo, if they're related to the original Tamori uh, and Shaitong and so on, the Tamori daimyo would be top of my list. Uh, that's, that's, that's a long memory there, sorry. <laughs> Shaitong is going to be printed as the soul of, so it's reopened old wound. I, I actually would <laughs> suggest that you don't have a long memory, you have a short memory, because that's, like, the Tamori, that's, like, new. 
to me, the whole Dragon Phoenix squabble that they had, like with Diamond Edition and all that, was so... To me, that's sort of like this contrived thing between clans that really have no reason to be fighting each other. So so the Phoenix have two natural allies, the Crane, because fundamentally we're both court-aligned rather than military-aligned. We don't like fighting. Um, The the Phoenix have a a large pacifist tradition, and the Crane Uh is good at courtier stuff. So I'm I'm very fond of the bird alliance there. And the Dragon and the Phoenix are both about uh, really understanding the world, uh, and and, the, the monk tradition in both clans, and the idea of just we're going to search for knowledge for its own sake. You know, I, I feel those two clans are my most natural allies as a Phoenix player, um, Spider notwithstanding. <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the whole Dragon Phoenix thing is kind of... Yeah, it was a rivalry because we're too similar, if that makes sense, uh, rather than rivalry because we're different. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think... Oh, let's see, right now, I think the Tomori Daimyo is still super old Shimura. And so he is not related by blood to the original Tomori founders. But they all became Dark Oracles, didn't they? So uh, Dark Oracles are fine specifically. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Agasha Tomori went. The the original Tomori went. And then Chosei was. And then, yes. And then Tomori Chosai is the Dark Oracle of Fire. Now, I think Chosai was the original Tomori's brother. And Tomori Shaitung was the the actual biological daughter of Tomori, I think. Yep. And she married Nakamura and they adopted Shimura. So if you I mean you can get the adopted an adopted descendant of the original Tomori crazy people. Yeah, that's not interesting enough. I guess I guess I'll just wait until I get a shot opportunity to kill the solo Shaitung and, and go for that. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not really interested in Nakamura's adopted daughter, you know. I thought for Nakamura still. Soft, soft touch that he was. Uh, he was definitely one of the characters I had sympathy for in the, the storyline. So, yeah, yeah, that... Uh, yeah, Shimmer was kind of Looney Tunes. I, I played him at Winter Court 2. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting the character. I'm like, I cannot play this character as written in the story. Because <laughs> if you do, he's just going to get thrown out of court in like a day. <laughs> I, right? You, he shows up in the fictions, and like he gets summoned by his his clan champion, and he's and he's and he's kind of stomps in. He's like, Why are you wasting my time? I got more important <laughs> things to do. It's like, Do you remember who you're talking to? Oh yeah, Off Dragon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's like. I guess back to the original question then. Uh, the daimyo I'd pick would be Natoshi because of the whole deal with Tsukimi. Uh, I think of, of all the people I have reason to look bear bad bad blood to, uh, I think that would be uh, my top choice. Yes, I think that the uh, the Phoenix have a legitimate grievance there. <laughs> uh, maybe not legitimate in Rokugan's eyes because they you know let it pass the first time. But right, we aren't Rokugani, and really, I I've always kind of. You know, how, how seriously do people in Rokugan really necessarily take this stuff? Like, okay, so I, I get all fanboy about the Katsuki method and all, but right, you, you've got to think, like, these are actual people. They may live in and accept a societal structure where people say, oh, well, if you're higher ranking, that means that you're better and couldn't possibly be lying, and so we accept that as the, as the truth. And, to me, it's always been like, well, they they do that because that's just how it worked. But I cannot believe that all that many people actually think that that's really the case. 
that like, oh, just because he's the clan champion means that he couldn't possibly be lying. He would no one would ever do that. <laughs> well, I have a background in psychology, and uh, you know how you're raised and the structure you're in does impact the way you think. Um, you know what you allow yourself to think is actually important. You know if if you constantly think negative thoughts, you will feed more negative thoughts, all that sort of stuff. So so I think to some extent it's unquestioned, and I think a lot of people in in Iraqi society wouldn't even question it themselves. They wouldn't think to question it. It wouldn't occur to them. I think it's very hard for us in a sort of liberal Western society to really get inside what the Rakhagani sort of mindset would be. You know, modern Japan is kind of a bit closer in that direction, but it's still it's still not the the setting that the Rakhagani is, is setting. So yeah, I, I, my jury's still out on that one. I think there'd definitely be people who get frustrated with it, and you know, the, the evidence is in front of their eyes, but people are not not accepting it, and and how can they persuade them and you know, viewing their own judgment above those of their superiors. There'll always be an aspect of that. But I think there'll also be a large number of people who just dutifully follow and do what they're told and don't really stop and think about, well, is this right or not? You know, it's the order. It's the way it's done. I'm going to do it. Well, yeah. see, that's why I end up as a Dragon Clan player. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think the third of the hot-button topics, uh, let's call them, has been the distribution of the the eternity bugged MRP cards for just as for background for people who are coming in, right? We had forgotten legacy right before the launch of emperor edition. It was a very high powered set in what turned out to be a very high powered environment. And there were six cards in it that were given this eternity bug and which meant that they were preemptively declared that they were going to be legal in the current arc, which was Celestial, and the upcoming arc, which was Emperor, and then the unknown arc after that that has turned out to be Ivory. One of the problems that has caught is that those cards would have been brokenly, stupidly good in or most of them in Ivory Edition, including the fact that you had two of them that were designed as starting holdings when we were moving to a rule set that didn't have starting holdings. So... Four of them are receiving, they received errata and are now going to be most recent printings in promo form. Those are going to be distributed through stronghold stores, but there are a, a certain quantity of people who have been complaining that basically everybody who originally bought a forgotten legacy should be sent these, uh, or that there should be some other way to get them. And I have a very definitive opinion on this, but uh, I'll let I'll let you give yours first, Donnie. So do I, and I suspect that the same one. Uh, I completely reject that position. Uh, the cards that we got in Forgotten Legacy are still legal for use. Okay, the wording on them has changed slightly. They've been MRP'd. But you can still use the ones that you, you got back in, uh, in Forgotten Legacy, uh, and they're still legal for play in your decks. What this does is it means that people who weren't playing two years ago can actually get these cards. <laughs> they're actually now available to new players uh, and give us a chance to, to give new players the ability to play with the same cards that we've got. You know, they're, they're going to stronghold stores. Not everyone can have access to stronghold stores. You know, for the minority of the, of the, the player base that can't get to a store and can't get updated printings, they can keep using the old ones. If they really care, they can put paper proxies in front of them or keep the updated wording with them when they when they go to a tournament. But this this policy makes them much more available to the current player base. And to me, that's absolutely the right decision to make. You are correct, Donnie. I do hold the same position that that you do. 
the fact that these are a card is getting a rata or getting an MRP in no way, shape, or form obligates AEG or any other company to send out new copies with the new wording to everybody who bought the old one. That's never something that that AEG has ever done. I don't think that's something that any uh CCG company has ever done. Actually, you know what? That may not be true. There may have been at some point in time with magic something where you could send in like there was a misprint mm-hmm. and you could send in the misprinted card. That's not quite the same thing, but I guess that's the only thing I, I, I can think of. And I think part of the issue here is I think there was an expectation set a few months ago, you know, before Ivory came out, that people would get sent updated copies of the cards. I, I can't track down the reference now, but I vaguely recall reading something along those lines. So maybe there's just an expectation management thing here where you know, someone from AG said this and they didn't change their minds. The new policy is perfectly sensible, but uh, um, it doesn't sound... Sensible. I think people may have just made an assumption of what was going to happen. I don't recall anything in specific about that. It may have just been that, oh, when they said that they were going to do MRPs and make sure that they got out there to people. But I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, yeah, I, I don't think they're obligated to. I I, I don't know what the costs are, but I, obviously there are costs associated with just mailing cards to everybody. I imagine, for what it's worth, I imagine that these are going to end up in the 2014 holiday pack. I don't know how much that's worth because the holiday packs are, out of all the things that AEG does, the ho- AEG does, the holiday packs are not really a good value unless you just don't get promos at all during the course of the year, which isn't really an option for people who are playing in tournaments. There's a whole subject there about AEG's past promo policy and... Uh... There have been rumblings that they're changing that uh, going forward, which would be a good thing. Yeah. Yes, that that is something that, that Reese has, that I believe it was Reese did specifically say during one of our interviews, was that they were they they were looking at that hard and that they were probably going to end up at least reducing the number of promos. I don't, I mean, it sounded like it was, they had considered eliminating them. I'm ga- I don't think that's actually going to end up happening. Yeah, I think you should it all together. As long as the promo is available in a uh, context that people can easily get. So, for example, the organized play promo is sent to stores. You know, a lot of those enter circulation, probably more than the number of players. Um, and so it's easy to get hold of those, and it, it creates a reason for people to come to events, and that's a good thing. Again, Cote packs, you know, I, I think they're going to keep happening. There's, what, 50-plus Cotes worldwide. Not everyone's within range of a Cote. But enough people go to two or more that you know, Cody pack cards are available. You know, the, the holiday pack doesn't provide a way of getting access to promos at the end of the year if you weren't able to get to the major events. Where they're on rocky ground is things like Imperial Herald promos, where people get one playset and not everyone gets them, and so you always end up with, with fewer copies in circulation than, the, uh, than there are players. Uh, and things like um, Worlds or European Championships, where you know, those, those cards are always fewer in circulation than the number of players. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the that's usually the summer con pack these days, whether usually it's the same thing at, at Euros and Gen Con and whichever one of them is Worlds that yep. year. And it's up in the holiday pack as well for that very reason that not enough players get to those two. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and they usually sell that. Although, I mean, it may also depend on how how much out there you consider it to be available because what, what comes to mind is Right with yeah, like you say, with the store promos, especially with the one of the promos that's the participation, 
there can be a lot of them out there, but still, when something gets good, right, Wormbone Katana was a participation promo, and yet play sets of it sold for 20 or $25 for a long time on eBay. So it's available, but <laughs> I guess it depends on what you you consider the appropriate price to be. But, but yeah, I... Yeah, I I don't think that there is really cause for complaint beyond the the fact that they made the poor choice of doing eternity bugged cards in the first place. I well, oh look, I mean I I, okay. I said that when they first came out, right? You can you know, go back and verify. <laughs> right, stop clock, uh was right twice a day and all that. But it's certainly not that I anticipated that their the sort of power down would be like that, but it just seemed like a you're, it's a hostage to fortune, you know? It might be a bad day, but you're creating a risk for yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why you don't print cards saying, this is going to be legal four years from now. Mm-hmm. And it actually won't be legal as long as we thought it would be, because I write it, they won't be legal after 2014. I don't think. Well, going back to our earlier conversation, you know, when I when the, the strict versus extended versus arc legality was first declared, I thought I'll always just run arc events. Um, and now having more experience of, of the uh, setup, I think strict is looking better and better. And uh, yeah, uh, if we're running events during the summer post Cote season, which of course is required to be arc, I'll seriously consider running uh, strict events in a lo- in a local group and uh, and pitching the stuff from before Ivory came out. Yeah, I think that winter court. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's gonna depend on what the sets look like between now and then. How much? Because I think that. If you had the option right now of running a strict event, and a strict event would just be Ivory Edition, I think that that would, you know, without, make clear, obviously without any play experience whatsoever, this sort of thing, I think that that would be a bad environment because the card pool is just too small. I agree. I think right now, Ivory itself is probably too small. If I just look at any deck I build these days, you know, under half the deck is Ivory Edition. I'm taking a huge amount from past sets. Yeah. So yeah. So it'll be a presumably. It, oh, okay. Well, obviously it'll get better. Uh, the question would just be how much. But I think that for the most part, strict will be an end of year format. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll see more of that. Well, I guess. Well, we certainly can't see less of it, but uh, <laughs> during dur- during winter court stuff, and that's consistent with. Something like how Magic has done it, right? You don't, you didn't do block constructed events when it was just the one set from the block. Not that they do block constructed like constantly like they used to. But. Yeah, it's going to be interesting come the summertime when we're all deciding about making our bids for Winter Court. You know, what formats we we decide to bid for if we're given the choice. Um, yeah. Certainly, I, you know, it, I I didn't even when the arc formats were first announced, I thought that I would just be doing arc all the time, and uh, you know we. Experience since then has made me think that perhaps that isn't the right answer, and strict is definitely worth considering at that point. But uh, as you say, we need to see what the uh, upcoming sets hold before we can uh, make that call. Yeah, yeah, and and how much that carries over through the the 2015 sets so, will depend on you know what the fluctuation is. You know that it's a very specific thing. It sounds like to me that it's oh well, there are some power level problem cards from old sets, and if the power level is more even between uh, Ivory and that, but uh, or if hey, to a, a, a consistent and um, great environment between the two of them, then there's yeah. no just play Ivory two. You may as well play every one Ivory two. Yeah, you can be uh, you can be really different. You can 
put in an application for an extended winter court event. As long as it doesn't include emperors, I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> I think no one's going to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Extended, yes. Emperor and Ivory. A.K.A. Emperor. <laughs> Although I guess it would be Emperor with the new rules, so that would at least be a, li- would be a little bit different, but I, I still think that's mostly Emperor. Well, and it'll also be interesting to see uh, what was going on. I, I guess w- right when they... They first made that announcement about the bugs, and the way he did it was very confusing. And, you know, I, I spent all this time with him trying to, to narrow it down and try to come up with a, a better way to talk about it in the arcs. But they, they kind of threw a monkey wrench in being able to refer to it easily because, well, the strongholds are only single bugs, although they're kind of expected to say the same, but the sensei aren't. So you have this weird thing where, like, not everything is actually... Yeah, the Sensei are only Ivory One bugged, so... I And I think... I I don't know what that... Like, I think that means that when it's 2015, the current lineup of Sensei aren't legal? If you're playing Arc Format, that's correct. So once Ivory 2 comes out, if you're playing Ivory 2 Arc Legal, stuff that's Ivory One bugged is not legal. If you're playing Extended, that's equivalent to Emperor, basically, because Emperor was a two-year arc. Uh, extended will allow Ivory One and Ivory Two at that point. Yeah, and will be consistent with our past uh, past experience. Yeah, so that I mean that's kind of interesting. It it seems kind of weird. I I'm guessing that the purpose of that is to make there be more of a change up between the years. In that you know, like I'm in in 2014, I can play Dragon Weapon Dueling because I have a Sensei for that, and then I'm going to have a Tamori Honor Sensei, and then I, you know, so I'm going to have the option of playing either of those decks. Then when 2015 hits, I'm, I'm going to have a Monk Sensei and then a Kitsuki Sensei or whatever. I'm just making mm-hmm. things up here. Sure. And so I'm going to have to play completely different ones. If your event is Arc Legal rather than Extended. Yes, yes. If Well, but I think most things will be Arc Legal because well, the, the, the problem, if you make it Extended Legal as the standard, that still includes... The Coils of Madness and the Gates of Chaos in the oh, app. Actually, right. They're every one bug, don't they? So yes. Yeah. So <laughs> it's it will once. I think it, yeah. Extended is always supposed to be three years worth of cards. So it's right. It's it's give or take one year worth of cards for Arc, sure. two years worth of cards for. Well, one. For I'm strict. sorry. One year for Strict. Yeah. Two for Arc. Three for Extended. I mean, I guess the one, not the one, but the first concern that sort of comes to my mind. That you could see with the uh, with the sensei and the way that they rotate out and the sort of generalized genericness of the cards is that I wonder what impact it will have how compatible people's themes are. Like if my themes for 2014 and my themes for 2015 are completely different and don't work at all together, that seems like it's going to make my beginning of 2015 decks generally worse. Then the decks of some clan that can be like, oh, these two themes use half of the same cards. I can basically just keep on using all my good 2014 cards in my new 2015 theme, and my chord pool is just twice as deep as yours. Uh, we'll see yeah, how that plays out. Let's look back at Emperor to give us an idea of whether that'll be the case or not. So, an end of arc Kitsuki on a deck, for example, played Tamori in it, or the Tamori played Kitsuki in it. You, know, you had a bit of both in there. They were both on a themes and there was synergy there. So the focus, maybe in, if Tamori is the first one, then the fo- focus in 2014 might be Tamori rather than Kitsuki. But you might still play some good Kitsuki in there. And then in you know, 2015, if Kitsuki is the focus, 
the best Tamori will still make the deck. Uh, Tamori Shison, I believe, is already one on two bugs. He has a printed on again on him. I imagine the Kitsuki deck will still play him as a 40 guy who gains honor, even if he's not, you know, courtier and the decks focus more on courtiers or magistrates. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, if you look at the way that I, that Emperor worked, the best decks didn't stick to one theme, but cherry picked the best cards out of a few themes that were, were synergistic and, and built them around into a, uh, to a single deck. And I think we'll see the same thing here that, you know, we're, we're just effectively picking the same four themes we had in Emperor, just, um, spread over two years. And there is enough synergy there that the idea of a deck that just has no synergy with the other half of the arc might happen, but shouldn't be the mainline, mainline case. Well, I, I don't think it's going to be that something will have literally no synergy. And I agree with you that very frequently you end up with with a lot of high-level decks, especially once you get to the end of the arc, that are not theme-restricted uh, and, and that do cherry-pick, which is, I mean, so when I say it's a question of degree, I think that, that it's important that those decks can often be cherry-picking because if if your themes work really well together and some other clan's themes don't work that well together, that gives you an advantage when you're making those cherry-picking decks. So, and of course, and then of course sometimes it's just some completely parasitic deck where everybody has to be a non-human summoned spirit Pokemon or whatever, and it still works perfectly fine. So, you know, mm-hmm. it all it all depends heavily on what the individual cards are. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at the card pool right now. If you look at the, the themes that we had in Emperor, even the themes that have no visible sign of existing in IV, there's still occasional support for them. I mean, you still have both Kitsuki and Tamori, for example, even though there's any space for one more theme in, in, in the Ivory One arc. Well... Uh, I, I think what you have to do when you you have to split that pool into the pre-ivory and the ivory. Uh-huh. For example, I, just for that specific one, there are no Kitsuki and Ivory edition. And the base ivory, gotcha. Yeah, so they're so they're all they're all before that. Because I, right, I remember looking at this when we were before they had done. They've announced what all the themes are going to be. They were all in the little design article, so we know that Tamori is going to be the other dragon theme. Just really? like we we know that. Like fire, fire Shugenja is going to be the the other Phoenix Sensei, something with Fire Shugenja. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that's actually could be something that'll be interesting to work out. I mean, going way back when you were you know mentioning Sanctioned Ghoul and Dishonor, I I have not had any luck with it, but I know some people are trying to use some of those, like trying to import some of those old Kitsuki da- guys into Dragon dueling decks to try to take advantage of the fact that there are some. Dishonored guys, you know, there's the guy who uh, who's a four four when he's opposing, you know, four four for five or something like that. When there's, yeah, I bet that deck is good fun. It actually does work in quite a lot of situations. So I'm not sure whether it's coated ready because I didn't get as far as uh, as testing it that far. But uh, yeah, yeah. lots of tools in there, and uh, come on to time is a really strong card. Yes, yes, come on. I mean, you do obviously dueling has restrictions, but you do have. Battle kill a guy on offense and battle kill a guy on defense. Yep. Uh, and that is not to be sneezed at. Yep. So, all right. We have been going uh, for a bit here. So, you know, I've been kind of driving things. Is there anything about the story, about, uh, about the card game, about that obnoxious guy on that one podcast who just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks? <laughs> That you wanted to to offer up to you know to get out there. 
Well, I'll just set up my view of Ivory Edition, which uh, I'm finding it both great fun and hugely frustrating at the same time. Uh, every game I've played, pretty much, has been highly enjoyable, and uh, there's been lots of really good back and forths and, and long games that you know, the winner wasn't clear till right near the end, which you was know, all really good stuff and makes for a great game. Equally, as a deck builder, I'm finding it very hard to actually find the right recipe that, uh, that beats the format, and uh, you know, Emperor is full of decks that you could play to beat the format. Ivory just doesn't have those. As a deck builder, that's extremely frustrating. Well, that sounds like a good frustrating for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> but for those people who aren't, aren't focused on the deck construction side and don't try and win events just by finding the right deck, it is a good thing. But since my stick has always been finding the broken deck that, uh, that lets me win an event, uh, I'm finding that much harder right now. So uh, it's good luck for the rest of you, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, come on. I, I You can't just rock turbo enlightenment again in ivory no? enlightenment uh yeah i did my to enlighten turn three once uh in a cote in, in dc uh, two years ago of course my my first deck in, in ivory edition in Emperor edition sorry was a five turn on the rocket but was it a turn for us and anything out there you know so yeah, I, I like finding these decks that just break the game and just do things just before people are ready for me but uh i also had a month blitz deck at one point that was similarly just sort of i need to win before you're really ready I've not managed to find a deck that does that yet in Ivory, which uh, yeah. is disappointing to me at a personal level, but uh, I'll keep trying. Well, I will tell you, if you can make, not, not not a broken, but just an actual competitive Enlightenment deck, we will come up with some sort of prize for you, because <laughs> I think that Enlightenment is, basically they decided that they were not, it was not worth trying to make Enlightenment a real deck anymore. <laughs> well, at my Kota, I am giving a prize to the person who wins the most Enlightenment victories. That's one of the five rings uh, that I'm giving out. And uh, so I guess all five of them, they achieve meta enlightenment, which would be really, really hard. Much harder than winning a game with enlightenment in, uh, in Ivory Edition. You won one game via enlightenment. Congratulations! <laughs> I, I think my criteria is something like, the person who wins the most enlightenment victories gets one of the rings. The person who wins the most bushy league victories, as in a deck that contains no rares or promos, gets a second ring. The winner of the honor contest gets a third ring. A couple of the other ones were, but you get the idea. You're trying to, to satisfy all those criteria and win all those in the course of the one event. Uh, if someone manages that, then uh, I'll have to find something suitably grand to give them, because uh, I don't think it's possible. I, I think that's like uh, the whole Warren Buffett is going to give away, give you a billion dollars if you <laughs> completely guess the bracket. Like You can offer any amount of prize, because it's not like it's statistically impossible sure. uh, yep. that you would actually have to give it away. <laughs> but... I think I'm using most of my creativity and prizes in uh, in the bottom of clan prizes. I think I'm, I'm amusing myself with those. Yep. Well, my wife is going to be joining us, playing her first Kote. Uh, she's picked up Scorpion, um, which probably should worry me, but it's good to have her playing. Um, <laughs> so, so she'll be there and, uh, and rocking, rocking Scorpion in Atlantis. So. Oh, well, that will be... Uh, well, nice. well uh, I'd say it'll be nice to meet her, but you might want to keep her away from some of us. We could be really obnoxious. <laughs> All right. Any uh, any other final thoughts? Nope. Uh, pretty great to be with you, and uh, thank you for the time. All right. Well, no, thank you very much for uh, coming on. We've been talking with uh, James Donathorne Tate. Among other things, he is the tournament organizer for the Knoxville Cote on April 19th. You can find more information about that, the Atlanta Cote and the other Cote by going to alderac.com slash forum and uh, going to the appropriate sub-forum from there. We, of course, would also appreciate it if you wanted to come by and say hi to us at strangeassembly.com. 
or facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. All sorts of ways to contact us. You can also contact me directly at chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for James Donathorn Tate, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.